Hey guys, welcome to Rankin' Vile, the podcast where we are ranking every single horror movie ever made from best to worst. And on this episode, uh, we are joined uh, by a co-owner of Escape Artist uh, Podcasts uh, and all-around uh, wonderful human being, Alistair Stewart. Oh, you. Thank you so much for having me on, Ryan. This is brilliant. Oh my god. I'm, 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 I've, I've wanted to have you on the show for such a long time because of... Uh, how frequently we talk about horror movies? Like it, it just—I I feel like every time we talk, it always ends up with horror movies. So this was this was always going to happen. And and what and what better movie to land on, huh? No, no shit. This was <laughs> oh my god! Like watching this movie. By the way, uh, my uh, my partner Christina sort of like craned her neck over while uh, I was watching. It was just like what the. F- fuck is this and then and then a, a beat afterward is that rutger hauer so it yeah it's extremely good so alistair we uh a question that we like to ask guests who are on the show uh for the first time is what is your background with horror like how did you uh, how did you get into horror like what was your what was your horror uh onboarding process like my horror onboarding process was hilarious because it was basically two decades of denial followed by a realization that i actually work in the field um <laughs> Growing up, I was always like, no, I'm a spaceship kid. I like spaceships. I'm into Doctor Who and the Star Wars and spaceships that go boom and all of this good stuff. And the whole time this was going on, um, I was I was about 5'11 by the time I was 12. My voice broke by the time I was 13. So I was plausibly getting into 15-year-old movies, which my mom was giving me a lift to uh, by the time I was 13 or 14. And also I was able to rent 15 or 18 movies. Um, for US listeners, the English movie certification process is U, PG, 12A, which now means, in a lot of cases, uh, a single F-bomb, uh, 15 and 18. And I, I was growing up at a time when 18 meant, hold on to your intestines, because something else is going to be as well. <laughs> Yeah, this was going to be the good uncut shit if it's, if it's 18. Absolutely. So, you know, I was coming up at the exact right time for stuff like Aliens and Terminator <laughs> and all those horror movies disguised as science fiction films. So those were kind of really pivotal texts for me. And then as time went on, um, I realized that, you know, uh, there, there were a couple of kind of really important uh, radio shows to me. Uh, Fear on Four, which is the BBC's postmodern, undying horror narrator who just emerges from the depths of broadcasting house once a decade or so and goes, hello, I have a story for you. It's about the just, dead. Yeah. Um, they just blow the dust off him every time he come, he pops out, and then they put him back in the box. <coughs> exactly, and you know, it, he's like Doctor Who's goth older brother. You know, we never actually see him <laughs> regenerate. He's just suddenly there. Um, and I really, really loved that. And I was when I found comics, the first thing I dived into was Hellblazer. And then a couple of years oh, ago, yeah. I realized that uh, the longest, the job I've held the longest in my entire life, is hosting a horror podcast. So someone actually went. So you're a horror guy now, and I say, like, I think I always was. So, and, and that's the thing is, like, you sort of look up, and then you know, it's it's like when you move to a city, and you're like, oh, I've just moved here, and then someone mentions, like, pal, you've lived here for twelve years, and you're yes. like, oh shit, I, I guess I, I guess I'm, uh, I guess I'm a native now. Oh god, um, I, I speak the language, and it, why is it always Latin? You know? Yeah, exactly. Well, and honestly, Hellblazer is such a good place to start because, like. That was, I was never a big comic kid, but that was always the one that I wanted to read because it looked sort of, you know, uh, adult and a little Mm -hmm. forbidden. And you've got like a a mean protagonist in a cool coat, which was, you know, very important for me as a kid. Oh, God. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And the the thing about Hellblazer was that it was often not subtle, but when it was subtle, it was better. The very first issue I remember reading, there's a scene where John goes for um, lunch in a park with a friend of his. And he's talking about the fact that he's ill and whether her boss can do anything about it. And it's pretty clear that there are supernatural overtones to all of this. Right. And the, the last panel of the scene is his, his friend Ellie looking at him over the top of her coffee mug. And her eyes are just horrifyingly distended and alien. And she's smiling yeah. with entirely too wide a mouth going, oh, don't worry, John. There's a space for you down there. And you're like, oh, oh. oh. Oof, that's Jesus. Yeah, honestly, by the way, with the the rating system, um, I've realized that like my my entire understanding of the rating system in Britain is like the the video nasties and of the nineteen eighties. Mm-hmm. Like it was such a like I feel like whenever um, we we talk about sort of like transgressive movies or like sort of bad eighties B movies, like there are I think like four different documentaries about the video nasty uh, phenomenon in the nineteen eighties on like Shutter. Yeah. Um, 
it seems like Britain was having a moment with with media and trying to figure out where the goalposts were. The, the, about once a decade, this country decides to have a very serious moral panic about something. And unfortunately, this decade is looking like the our chance rights, human rights, to which the obvious answer is, fuck you. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, but in the 80s and 90s, it was, oh, but should our kids have to watch these movies? And the answer is that if your kid looks like they can pass for 18, yeah, they will. Um, and it's, how can I put this? I was never... The, the way that I've described it is a lot of the horror movies I saw damaged me in, in a good way. They yes. uh, introduced me to narrative forms I wouldn't have understood before. They assisted in my cultural and emotional education. And you could say the same thing a decade later with video games. Uh, there is... There's, there's a, a comic writer who's sing, who had this single perfect aphorism. And it was the best way to get kids to want to see or read something is tell them they can't. Yeah. Exactly. Like that, that that was exactly how I got started with horror. Right? You 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 look at this stuff and you go, Oh, that that's on about three hours past bedtime. Well obviously I'm setting the tape for her. <laughs> yeah. Well and honestly this is a thing that I, I worry about is that and, and yeah, sort of damaged in a good way, like kids right now i'm concerned that like where are they getting you know their the material that's going to like scar them for life and get them into horror or get them into that like wonderful little forbidden feeling of like i am watching something i definitely should not be watching like they have you know access to any movie they could possibly want to watch anytime they want to watch it and i'm wondering what they're doing with that uh, i choose to believe it's the tiktoks <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Finding it on the TikToks. Um, uh, th that's, that's, obviously, that's a conversation for another time, but TikTok is doing incredibly interesting narrative stuff, which uh, clearly the Chinese intelligence agencies who designed it to steal facial recognition data never for a second thought it would. Yeah, honestly. I, uh, TikTok, I, I feel like it's doing fun stuff with surrealism. That yes. I feel This was always going to happen, I think, with like sort of weird internet humor, so... Yeah, I, I believe I believe the children are the future. Um, <laughs> let's uh, let's dive into the goddamn the movie we're talking about this week. Um, this movie is utterly singular and yes. yet made made up. It's Frankenstein together from basically every other movie from around this period. We are doing a split second from 1992, which is a cyber horror uh, thriller. It's a cyber horror thriller, cyberpunk mismatched cop movie. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's which I feel like everything uh, they're they're going if it if if it can be a buddy cop uh, action comedy it will be a buddy cop action comedy, um, and this movie uh, it's starring uh, Rutger Hauer which this this weirds me out he plays a good guy, in a movie yeah. I'm I'm uncomfortable with this somehow. <laughs> no, this is wrong. This is just wrong. <laughs> like, he's got such unwholesome vibes uh, on screen that, like, seeing him in... And his character is sort of a straight-ahead, like, Bruce Willis uh, cynical cop whose partner died. Because Willis always had that kind of... Even now has that kind of slightly romanticized sleaze to him. And mm -hmm. you look at Harley and think, if I touched you, you'd be sticky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a film on him, right? Like, his, also, his, his, his name is Harley Stone, which is just an outstanding name for any cyberpunk cop. Um, he he looks dead on like a Shadowrun character. Like, the, yeah, with the boots and the trench coat and... The little sunglasses. Like, he... Yeah, yeah. And, like, you know, we, we get the opening of the movie, and it's him sort of, like, striding down uh, a hallway with uh, a shotgun over his shoulder, and he's got the cool sunglasses. And then the movie's like, also, he's a cop, I guess? And also, that first shot, and they, they, they do the Rutger walks purposefully down this, the, the corridor in the precinct, like, three or four times thing. If you notice, every single time, and I choose to believe this was written into his contract, a female cop stops and goes, hello, as he goes past. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely in the mix. Like, like, the narrative needs to inform us, yes, this man is very attractive. Um, th this movie takes place... Uh, in the the it's like 15 minutes into the future it's like a uh, global warming as we used to call it uh, has um, filled London with water and rats <laughs> oh. um, it's it's never they never really I feel like they never really go back to what is going on with the global warming and the rats 
the the thing I, I I loved more than anything else when I rewatched this yesterday was seeing that big portentous opening opening crawl with him. London, had, the city is now largely underwater, and the, the, and and you know criminals have gone feral. And then there's just stock footage. No, nothing's flooded. <laughs> yeah. Nothing at all nothing. is flooded, uh, apart from the two sound stages which all the sets are on, where everyone has to splash through ankle deep water the whole time, and the rest of London. I mean, there's, yeah. there's a chase sequence at one point. And they drive around St. Paul's, and it's pristine. There are buses. Yeah, there's, there's no. I, I, maybe they didn't have the budget to flood London for the, for the filming of this uh, motion picture. Um, I mean, it's, it's wild. It's wild also because, like, I, I feel like during this period, uh, intros to movies loved doing the, the news footage intro, where it's flitting from headline to headline to like get you up to speed with where everything's at. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's so what's incredible um so we get this big uh bar scene now i've realized that uh, as a kid i think um i assumed that in my adult life there would be more sort of scary bars with people dancing around in bondage gear possibly there'll be fire there's industrial music like uh, have you, you you've seen hellraiser 3 right oh many times yeah, the the club from Hellraiser three that's like somehow a combination restaurant, bondage bar, and music venue. Where you you, you get this the sneaking suspicion there's a there's like a a fight build up somewhere which is like open cage fight night Tuesdays that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, th- now this movie also wh- what's weird to me is that so everything is meant to be uh, submerged in water, but also everything is just constantly smoking in this movie. Just it looks like the entire city's gonna explode. Like there's just so much smoke rising up. I don't. It's. I. I don't know if that was a choice so much as the movie going. Well, it's a cyberpunk horror thriller, so yes, we will have smoke. The, uh, this is something I'm, I'm sure we're going to come onto, but I mean, this this thing does a lot of things very very wrong. But as as you you pointed out when we were talking about this earlier, it looks a million quid. I mean, probably not much more uh-huh. than that, and. You know, it's maybe borrowed some stuff from its mum, but it actually looks really good a lot of the time in how it's shot. It really does. Like, it, it looks so much better than I think it has any right to, honestly. Oh, God, For, yes. Yeah, like, like especially, like, this This is, like, a big uh, uh, set full of, like, all manner of... Now, I, I love the people in the background who sort of look like uh, the thugs from a Frank Miller comic. Um, yes. Where they all just have these little nasty sunglasses and goofy haircuts, and it's like, during that period when nobody quite knew what punk rock was on like a Hollywood level, but they 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 they, were, they figured they had an, an approximation of it. So Harley goes to this bar, and what we find out is that his partner uh, was killed by a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Is it ever explained? Like. The, the, we never found uh, the serial killer, and he's sort of scarred by the experience, and uh, apparently this uh, serial killer's MO is to just rip people's hearts out of their chests. Yeah, just... it. it this this particular killer is, is a lot. There is zero chill here. Things are ripped out, things are bitten, you know, there's, there's running, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. Yeah, although I, I I appreciate the killer's branding that he's like very consistent with like I'm the I'm the rip I'm the rip out hearts hearts guy like that's what I do I have to it makes me think of um, this killer must have done the thing that Keith Moon once did where they got in the car to the to to go to the airport and then he's like wait no we have to go back to the hotel I almost forgot and then he like goes back in throws the TV out the window and then goes back down to get in the car to go to the hotel. Like, this is... I, I assume the killer in Split Second was like, oh, shit, I forgot to rip the heart out, and he had to go back and do it. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> okay, we can just, go. I'm just going to sneak past her, rip out heart real quick. Okay, th- thank you so much. Um, now, what I also love is that uh, Ian Dury uh, of Ian Dury and the Blockheads is uh, sort of the bar manager for this place. Yes, and and he, and oh, because he's Ian Jury, there is no acting. It is literally Ian Jury is Ian Jury in split second. Yeah, yeah. Like he's one of those people that like he. I, honestly, I have a thing. I think he has the only authentic Cockney accent, and everybody else is putting it on. All others are copied from him. There's a there's an exam clearly. Exactly. Uh, he honestly. His his screen presence. His I love his voice so much. It's just this raspy, nasty little deep voice. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a treat anytime he's on screen. And so there's a, a woman at the bar who's like, 
Uh, there's like a weird flirting thing with with Harley where she's like, "Hey, I'm gonna go into the bathroom. Can you can you watch out for me?" And he's like, "What? Yeah." And she's like, "All right, don't sneak into the bathroom to watch me." And he's like, "Will do." <laughs> like he's so uncomfortable with this interaction. Uh, and she she in very short order uh, she gets uh, murked uh, and dies and. And no, dies a lot. Don't. It must be said. She dies so much. Like she that now this movie has I assume the budget was for two things. It was for neon lights and the other one was blood. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like it is just everything is soaked in blood in this movie and she um so she screams let everybody know that you know there's like some, something hinky's going on and they run in there. She's dead and also there is scrolled on the wall in uh, in blood. I'm back which means that the the killer had enough time to both rip her heart out, scrawl that on the wall and skip town before anybody else could could make it into the room. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We, the I have theories about a lot of the things missing from this film, which as yeah. we get on, we'll we'll I'm, I'm I'm sure we'll discuss. But this this whole the killer is an invisible eight foot ninja element does become much more important <laughs> as time goes on. Yeah, yeah. I, I it does the well. What it does is the alien thing of you never totally see what the monster looks like until the the third act. Yeah. And the, the the third act, which it turns out was shot by someone other than the original director. Wait, no shit. What happened there? Uh, massive amounts of stress, basically. Um, the the original director basically two-thirds in just went, I can't do this. And uh, <laughs> they parachuted someone else in. And um, Stephen Norrington, who would go on to be the man who retired Sean Connery from movies, if I remember correctly. Uh, oh wow! Designed the creature. I mean, it's a it's a it's a good design. It is. It, it's like primarily teeth based. Like this thing, it's it sort of looks like venom if venom did had more teeth instead of eyes. That's a really good description of it. Yeah, it, it's it's a little bit kind of deep sea fish as well. Yeah, yeah. There's something. Yeah, like just that jutting, uh, scary toothed jaw. Uh, honestly, I think. I wish more directors were able to do what the first director did, actually, to just go, you know what? I'm having a bad time, friends. I need to I need to I need to end this collab. We need to get someone else in here. Um, uh, this is not precious for me. I am leaving. Yeah, um Tony Malin yeah. stepped off and Ian Sharp, who was I believe the special effects coordinator, basically got together a team of people to shoot the finale on the on the London Underground train. Which is why that feels a little different, I suspect. Yeah, it does feel different. Like, there's also, um, I don't know if it's just the time period, but speaking of other directors who had a bad time making a movie, there's kind of an Alien 3 vibe to some of this movie. Well, it's full, um, it, it's full of alliteratively named northern men with shaved heads calling each other bastards. So there's, <laughs> you know. Yeah, which, by the way, so let's get into that. So what we, um, so Harley Stone, the, the coolest man uh, sub- ever submerged in water and rats. <laughs> Uh, is, uh, you know, he's he's a, a hardened cop who, I mean, it's the classic uh, cop thing of like, ah, I lost my partner and now I can't trust anyone else and it's just me. And the department um, is like, actually, no, you have to be paired with uh, this needle dick weasel we found in the back room, apparently. Um, now, th- let's get into their, their dynamic. It is a strange dynamic and I'm really into it. It really, really is because... It, it's not the normal, well, I'm by the book, well, I'm a raging shitstorm kind of thing. It, it, right. Because you, you get about ten minutes of that, and then Durkin drops the first of these, this seemingly never-ending list of really weird things. And he has it's this running gag through the movie about, you know, do, do you know anything about taxidermy? That's one of my hobbies. Like, what? Yeah, it's incredible. Like, also the fact that his name is Dick Durkin. Um, so we've got Harley Stone and Dick Durkin, first of all, in the mix. Uh, which I love. But by the way, later on in the movie, there's a bit where they both make fun of each other's names, which I feel is important. It, it, it's it's a moment of genuinely lovely bonding, isn't it? Where they're like, "Well, we 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 both have very stupid names, and no one likes us but us." Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and this guy, his thing is that he's uh, a psychologist. Uh, and he, you know, he went to what, Harvard or, or something. Um, uh, he's 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 an Oxford man and likes to talk oh, about yeah. how about how, how he went to Oxford. Whereas, you know, Harley was presumably raised in one of Tina Turner's shoes in a layby <laughs> somewhere outside Notbush. 
<laughs> yeah, his fa- his father was a, a a host of snack cake, and his mother was a truck driver. Like this is <laughs> absolutely yeah. He their their dynamic is so genuinely combative so much of the time, and I kind of love that because you know when, if you get into a movie like a Tango and Cash, uh, which you know don't get me wrong, I love, but you, you, you those movies there's almost a sort of bonhomie built into it from the start because you are aware that it's a buddy cop movie, right? So you know you see. Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell, and they're, like, you know, giving each other, like, barbs, but also the movie itself is like, aren't these guys cool? Where, with Split Second, I genuinely didn't know if they actually were going to kill each other. Right? And there's there's that fantastic running gag where, where Holly is just constantly making sure Dick is mildly inconvenienced. And it's never anything bad. It's things like at one point he steals his keys and throws them in the water by his feet and drives off. And at, at another, he makes sure he gets locked in the gun cage at the front of the precinct. And, and Alistair Duncan, the guy who plays Durkin, has such this, this wonderful slow burn kind of, you motherfucker, kind of facial expression for so much of this. Yeah, like so much of the uh, of of their shenanigans, it's very elementary school sort of uh, picking on your crush sort of thing. Like, I'm gonna throw your keys in the water and then like drive away. Like, yes. it's yeah. And and honestly, his character arc is so funny because he'll he'll just give all the like he's like trying to give uh, which the movie informs us uh, that Harley Stone. Uh, survives on uh, chocolate, anxiety, and caffeine. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's, you know, burning the candle at both ends, and then you've got this other guy coming and trying to give him, like, health tips, and he's like, I go running every morning, and I have se- I'm, I am always having sex, apparently. I don't know if that movie was... If the movie was making him be like, yeah, I know how to do sex a lot, or if it, he genuinely is like, no, I'm just genuinely rolling in sex every day. Apparently, a lot a lot of the cutscenes, and no one's ever quite tracked down all of them, but a lot of the cutscenes are with Durkin's girlfriend. Really? Yes. I, I, I was assuming it was going to be a she lives in Vancouver situation. Uh, no, apparently he has a real life girlfriend, and they have an odd, but uh, from, what I, from what I was able to track down, actually kind of nice relationship. Man. Man, this movie, it's got so many surprising little bits in it. Right? Um, it's, man, it's incredible. Uh, the movie has a bit of a tone problem, I would say. <laughs> where it kind, of, it kind of can't tell what it wants to be. Because, like, sometimes it is, like, brutal in a way that I was like, God damn, split second, all right. And then the rest of the time, it's kind of goofy. Um, it kind of never totally settles on a tone. One of the, the, the one of the really interesting things about that is there's I think there's maybe one element which up until a moment we will talk about actually is unified pretty much all the way through and that's that's Howard's performance. This is he's actually very good here, and and he's he's very good as a guy who is profoundly unlikable and knows it. Yeah, unlikable and also broken in a way that uh, he doesn't totally know how to fix. Like he is. He, he's having a bad time in his life. Like, he. what's also incredible to me is that, you know, again, with a, a Stallone or a, a Russell or someone, they've got that twinkle in their eyes that tells you, like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, or, like, even Bruce Willis in, like, The Last Boy Scout, you know, like, he's a broken man who also has that twinkle in his eyes that's like, I like making one-liners, and Rutger Hauer is just a broken man. Yeah, he, he, at the end of a shift, he goes back to his room full of pigeons a motorbike we never see used, <laughs> dirty coffee cups, and just sits and waits to go back out. Also, um, his gun fridge, because we, we must talk briefly about the fact that Harley <laughs> has a gun fridge. Um, Gotta keep him cool. I, I, I never noticed before, but the brand of ammunition he favors is called something like um, Alpha Go or Alpha Extreme, or something. It's basically like, he has a fridge full of, full of like, cases of rounds which basically say, dick, on them. <laughs> I mean, you don't want him to go bad. You want to refrigerate him. Uh, yeah, he's got, he's got proper, like, in the crisper drawer. Like, he, it, the bike is a thing I keep going back to, by the way, because is this meant to be tied into him being Harley Stone? Because there's, like, a weirdly high number of Harley Davidson merch. I think it might be. And we probably shouldn't talk about the fact he's in a fourth-floor walk-up. And that thing is, I think, a retired police bike. So they may have had to take a wall off to get it in. <laughs> oh, my God. I hadn't even thought about that. The logistics alone are a nightmare. 
Also, um, the, the the moment where even if somehow the whole heart's tearing out, remarkably good penmanship thing with the serial killer, somehow if that hand tipped you off to it being evil, the fact that it sneaks into Harley's apartment and turns his bike on, it is, <laughs> it's the moment where you just go, oh, you're going down. You messed with uh-huh. the man's ride. Yeah, it's just, it's just not done. Like that's yeah, you've 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 crossed the line. Um, the now, the so we were introduced to, uh, Kim Cattrall's character, uh, who apparently uh, you find out that Harley, uh, she and Harley had an affair uh, when, um, Harley's partner was still alive. So she was Harley's part. Uh, she was Harley's partner's partner, mm-hmm. and then they were having an affair, and he died. So now they've got. Uh, so when, when when we're introduced to her, um, there's this enormous like morning cave that's like <laughs> it's this enormous cavern full of shelves with candles on them, which I guess is sort of a a, a, a kind of cemetery. It's I, I've I've kind of been able to piece some of this together. This is supposed to be a callback to old Victorian uh, mausoleums. And mm-hmm. I think it's also meant to be a subtle nod to the idea that the city is suddenly very short on land. So that, you know, if, if large portions of ah. it are flooded, basically you have this big warehouse with plaques for everyone who's died. So you can go and pay your respects. Of course, it doesn't actually say any <laughs> of that. So it's mostly just a big room where people are sad. <laughs> Which normally we, I just think of as Twitter. Well, um, I mean, that's- you know. Yeah, I, honestly, yeah, like that—that that would be a great bit of uh, world building if it's like, yeah, you know, like the listen, all of the corpses we've buried underground have come floating up to the surface now. It's a whole fucking problem. The rats can only eat so many of them. We need to consolidate uh, our our uh, funereal services. Right? Do you want cholera? Because this is how you get cholera. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's a real dishonored situation. Um, that now there's a Scorpio branding from the the Scorpio Ripper. Yes. What? So the movie informs us uh, that, and by the way, as a Scorpio myself, I can confirm um, that Scorpios themselves uh, are more prone to the forces of darkness. Harley's birthday, by the way, is a day before my birthday uh, on November tenth. Um, and it, they, do they ever uh, remind, remind me? Do they ever actually go back to the Scorpio thing? Like, why Scorpio? Oh, good lord, no! Um, this, this was actually the, the moment where I felt really vindicated because I remembered watching this far too long ago and the entire last half hour basically being Alistair Duncan going it's not a cult, no wait it's really fucking a cult, no it's the Scorpio thing no it's to do with this constellation please get me a mirror so I can draw a reverse version of the map, the symbol that's gouged on my chest over a map of London, we need to go there, it's this thing, it's a dimensional rift, and I thought I can't possibly have conflated all of this that much and the film obviously takes a breath and it doesn't literally the entire last half hour is Durkin vomiting every occult textbook he apparently read across one 10 hour night out all of which turns out to be true yeah yeah that's the thing is like he's meant to be sort of the info drop character uh, and the problem is that if you're dropping info it has to have context and make sense and relate to itself otherwise like and th- that's the thing that I love about this movie is that so many, it's like somebody just nailed a shitload of pigeons to a crocodile, and they're all kind of moving, and mo- kind of moving in the same direction, but a lot of it is just flapping helplessly. And it's great because it's like, this is that this is them throwing as many things at a very sticky wall and trying to make it work. And the, the thing which wrecks me is there's a genuinely brilliant idea in there, and they do exactly one thing with it, which is that the killer is a gestalt entity, or that it can yeah. summon the DNA of everything that it, it has killed. Because there is, there's a, a lovely fuck you moment, almost as lovely as turning the bike on, where the, the, the shotgun which the killer apparently uses at kind of full arm's length, given the length of his mm-hmm. claws, um, is covered in the fingerprints of Harley's dead partner when it's recovered. And I loved that. And even rewatching it now, I was like, oh, shit's about to get... Re- no, shit's about to get incoherent. Sorry, should have realized. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is a very 2020 mood, I feel. Everything's about to get real. No, actually, it just doesn't make any goddamn sense. It, it doesn't um, make any sense and it'll happen forever. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and the, the monster, uh, not only uh, does it collect the DNA of everybody it kills, it canonically sends their souls to Christian hell. Yes, 
it they never go back to that. I I double checked. They they I I love I love it so much because it's like a small child describing a monster and then that's this monster where it's like and the guy he got the long fingers and he rip your heart out and you go to hell but also he collects your DNA and it's like sure kiddo yeah oh, that's oh, a already okay that's like a that's like a that's like a normal kind of a monster Kim Cattrall's wig. Uh, in this motion picture. We have to talk about this. Hachi machi this wig. It's it's like a Mia Wallace bangs situation. Did she shave her head for this? That's a great question because it... Now, Alistair, if you could describe the wig. Okay. What's the best possible way to describe this? Cyberpunk Betty Boop, I think, is about <laughs> as close as I can get. Yeah. Or, or just completely drenched... Um, character in the Rocky Horror Picture Show I can never remember who is it in the butler oh oh uh, Riff Raff Riff Raff yeah it's it's cyberpunk PTSD Riff Raff basically <laughs> oh my god yeah that's perfect like it's I, I could not stop staring at the wig she um, we actually get kind of a lovely um, moment with uh, her character and Harley Stone where they're both in mourning for Stone's partner and they just kind of like put their heads together with their eyes yeah. closed and are just like experiencing that grief that was really kind of beautiful Cottrell actually blew me away in this because she comes in and is instantly about 8,000 times better than the movie deserves mm -hmm. and she has about three scenes and in all of them she's really really good and like you say she this is obviously a woman who is utterly grief stricken and has no idea what to do with this sticky feral rat boy that she's she's kind of inherited but at the same time is really very fond of him and and just the untidy nature of the trauma that the fact that they're both like well yeah and just taking that moment the fact that he only sleeps when she's around is a beat with an yes. emotional weight to it that this movie does not fucking deserve because yeah. it, it's it's in, it's incredible like and and that's one of the, I think that's what endears this movie to me so much is like for every um there's a demon who rips out hearts and sends people to hell sort of goofiness I think there are um the quiet moments in this movie when there's like nothing on the soundtrack and it's just we're like experiencing these characters who are also dealing with like wow we definitely had an affair and then he died and we've got the guilt yeah. of that and they and they're just like sort of propping each other up, and I think it's kind of gorgeous. It it is such an interesting central relationship, and they both play it so well. Yeah, and we also now here's the thing. Also, uh, Rutger Hauer has so many pigeons apparently in his home. <laughs> um, I sorry, you played Roy Bat. You played Roy Batty in Blade Runner. Like, you if you're if you're Rutger Hauer and you're around pigeons, don't make me think about a better movie while I'm watching this movie. It, it's. It is a callback too far, isn't it? Is that kind of mm. yeah, maybe not. Just, yeah, a little, little bit. Um, the part now, so there's a we 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 get a bar scene with uh, Dick Durkin and Harley Stone, um, where Harley is. This is, I think, the biggest uh, indicator of this man's life is falling apart. He is just straight up shaving with an electric razor at the bar. Yep. <laughs> just, just right there and uh it's it's such strong energy i feel uh, i i actually put this scene absolutely side by side with the opening montage of clerks uh the, the 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 moment where the music kicks in and you see dante's feet drop into his docks and he sprints off and paints the i'm not even supposed to be here today sign it just has that kind of <laughs> nothing is right i'm dealing energy to it yeah yeah and honestly and at this point i think the dynamic the dynamic between stone and durkin is starting to sort of solidify where they're like sort of like i don't know there's kind of like a a, a, a namaste thing that's like but for bastards <laughs> where it's two unlikable men going the bastard within me recognizes the bastard within you exactly um and you know <coughs> we're getting a bunch of like back and forth the so we get a gratuitous shower scene with kim cattrall um where uh, she is, I think she's on the. They're, they're, uh, we, we get these like killer POV shots that make us think that uh, something like that the the tooth ninja has broken into her house. Um, and it turns out like that, what, where where was the monster at this point? Like were were they attacking someone else? Um, if I this is one of, one of the points, and, and this is not a long movie. It, it it's 
here for a good time, not a long time. But there are a couple of points where things get a little sketchy. And this is one of them, where the film basically tells you that it's there to attack Kim Cattrall. Whereas in reality, it's attacking one of Harley's random neighbours. Because somehow people live in the same building as him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, and and there's also, um, I think this is one of my favourite jump scares I've ever seen, is that... uh, Stone rushes back to the house because he thinks that um, she's a, she's about to get killed. Uh, he he opens the curtain where you think you're going to see like her with her heart ripped out, and she's just naked and going "wah" and like screaming. Also, and it, and genu- it genuinely surprised me. And and on on top of all that, and this this is another one of those Kim Cattrall kind of just giving more than more than the movie requires. The look on her face is pure. Oh, for fuck's sake! Yeah, yeah, Michelle is having a bad, like, it, it, her, her, yeah, I, it's so funny that, like, it, it immediately cuts to the other person being, uh, just brutally murdered, um, and then the monster, I think, kidnaps Michelle? Maybe she gets bitten at some point, and it's off screen, and she's remarkably chill about it, that's... <laughs> yeah, and also at this point, um, when they, when they run back, uh, to, to the house, um... Durkin, uh, Dick Durkin gets shot so hard that it, like, it propels him out the window and onto the street below. And immediately you're like, oh, he dead. Like. He said, that man is going to land in another movie. <laughs> yeah, it's, he's, it's incredible. Like, I, I assume he was, like, rigged up on wires and they just yanked that fucker out the window. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it's a hell of a hit, isn't it? It's just like. Because, like you, when I rewatched, we rewatched it. I got to that, and I was like, "Oh Jesus Christ!" Yeah, it's a lot. Uh, and then, and the bat. Now, the I'm I'm really impressed by the use of fake blood in this movie. Like, it looks gruesome when it's like just splattered all over the walls, and it's a lot of bathrooms with blood in it, which I think is always sort of an, a primal, upsetting thing. And the 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 thing that it does really well is the blood is untidy. And I mean, I, I've suffered from nosebleeds ever since I saved a soccer ball with my face, age 12. Uh, so I, I know a little bit about blood spatter on porcelain in certain circumstances. And yeah, so the, they, they had a couple of special effects techs just stand in a room and go, you're, you all are going to want to stand back and close the door and don't touch us when we come out. <laughs> Yeah, like it's. I, I think that the trick that I learned uh, with fake blood is always put a little um, dishwasher uh, or dishwashing liquid. Oh, that's uh, a good in one. Fa- in with the fake blood, so yeah, so it, it washes out easier if if you need to. You know, this was. I remember there. All right, so total side note here. Uh, in uh, college, uh, we did a. Uh, there was a one act festival where everybody would do like a one act play, and it was just like a, a bunch of them, and uh, it was sort of for you know student directors to like you know kind of cut their teeth on on mm-hmm. you know directing a show. And there was one where I played a uh, serial killer that you find out is a serial killer at the end of the thing, uh, and I get stabbed. Um, but I had the little packet of fake blood uh, tucked uh, into my shirt so that, like, I would slap my armpit, and that would sort of explode the thing. It accidentally exploded uh, about uh, ten minutes before it was supposed to. So I just and so I'm I'm like angling away from the audience and like trying to hide it, and then. When uh, the the character went to stab me, I immediately just like threw the blood with my hand as much as I could to just sort of whoa, I'm bleeding. Nice. Um, that was. I still have nightmares about bleeding, like having fake fake blood caked on onto my side and needing to angle away from the audience because they can't see it. Um, um along along similar lines, my my dad when he was a teacher was the teacher who also directed the annual school play. And his very last one was uh, the theatrical adaptation of a very good World War II YA book called The Silver Sword by Ian Seralia. And this was during one of the great flu pandemics. You know, not not the kind of thousands of people in a grave, but just the everyone got it. So about half the cast got this thing across the two weeks it was on, which meant there's a scene where there are two German sentries uh, who discover one of the characters and only one of them was ever healthy at any given time. So the other one just learned both sets of lines. Holy shit. That's and, incredible. And this, this, the, these two amazing kids would literally just come on stage and go, ah, Hans, the virus is hard. Yeah, Kurt, it is. And just shift position behind 
the 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 marks so they got a standing ovation every night and uh, kind of relevant to our discussion of blood spatter my mother is an, is an ex-nurse which means she can sense trauma from about 15 miles away and oh, yeah. the the last night uh, of the show we were sitting in the background i'm like 10 at this point you know my brain is full of full of nothing but is optimus prime the best autobot and and i realized that, that my mum's going a little tense i'm like are you okay it's like hmm she's bleeding and the female lead of the show is on stage and she's covering her mouth a little bit. Mum pops backstage and finds out she got a massive nosebleed and had done the last half hour basically with her hand clamped over her face. Holy shit. Yes. That's incredible. That's you know what? That's she's she's a goddamn professional finishing the show like that. Right? Right. I, I have so much respect for that. Like honestly, yeah. Um yeah, I feel like having a mom uh, who's a nurse like that's you you've got somebody on hand to sort of point out anything and go, "Oh, that looks bad." Also, uh, she's from time to time she will come out with fantastic, just kind of what? Like uh, when she saw Fellowship of the Ring for the first time, her one line review was, I really liked the bit where Boromir died because that's what it looks like. <laughs> Fuck me. That is, that is, a, that is a, a, a ringing endorsement of Boromir's death, actually. Yep. Like, uh, that's, and- like, that's, like Chris- that's like Christopher Lee telling Peter Jackson what it sounds like to get stabbed in the back. <laughs> It's like no, because I I know don't don't worry about it. I just I I, I know about these things. Um, from from time to time, she, there will there will be things that she obviously thinks that she's told us that just come out. Like I think my my favorite is the time she had a long conversation with a patient at the first hospital that she worked at, uh, and then checked into the ward to the start of her shift and was told the lady she just talked to had died two hours previously. <sighs> oh my god. That's yeah, yeah. I I feel like that's one of those things where you just kind of want to let somebody talk about stuff. That's just like I know you've got like a million horrifying things. Yeah. Just uh, it, sh- away. It, it should also be pointed out. This is the same lady who would regularly, when we lived in the countryside on the Isle of Man, stop the car, wind the window down, lean out, and yell at passing hedgehogs that if she saw them run over when she came back the other way, she'd be very cross. <laughs> <laughs> so you have canonically the coolest mom, is what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel, I feel, I feel comfortable. Uh, uh, yeah, ranking that. We so um, split second doesn't quite know what to do with its police station and cast of characters uh, because we've got uh, the great Pete Postlethwaite uh, uh, in 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 a role where he's like, there's like a bunch of bald yelling guys at the. Police, police station. Now, and another thing that I love, by the way, there is not a uh, as as somebody whose hair is quietly turning into Bill Murray's. There is not a non-receding hairline in this motion picture. Right, all of them. I love it. All love of it. them. The, the the thing which I adore about the police station is that my two favorite alliterative named actors, Alan Armstrong and Pete Postlethwaite, both show up, and they're both playing basically the same character at different stages in his career. <laughs> Yeah, they both look like uh, sort of Pete Postlethwaite. Uh, sort of looks like sorry, Postlethwaite. 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 There we go. Um, that's there are a lot of consonants in that that name. I tell you what. Um, he he sort of looks like the next Pokemon evolution of the other one. That like, is a perfect just, description. Yeah, they. It's yeah, and and you know we're getting the sort of uh, now the thing that doesn't quite work. Uh, in, with the police thing is that that it's trying to do is the classic uh, movie cop like, hey, the city council's riding my ass about property damage. You're going to be riding a desk if you don't, et cetera, et cetera. And like they kind of try to do that with Harley, but Harley has no sense of humor and he's a broken man. So he's just like, <laughs> fuck off. The thing I only just discovered is that Alan Armstrong's character is called Thrasher. Oh, Thrasher. That's, man, yeah, we've got Thrasher, we've, yeah, Thrasher and Paulson. Yep. Which feels, yeah, that, that's that's a good name for a duo. We, so we, we it's revealed that Dick Durkin, who got uh, yeeted into space with a, a, a mortar, and, yeah, he's uh, the guy who got planted into the concrete. He was wearing a bulletproof vest. Ah, uh, he was he was fine apparently. I call bullshit. That man is dead. There is no <laughs> earthly way that guy is just gonna get up and go. Oh, good thing I was wearing my bulletproof vest and like go get a sandwich. I I I deny this. Um, we so they keep finding the thing, the the tooth ninja, and shooting the thing, and then the thing is fine and unhurt, and they're getting frustrated about it. Yes, yes, they are. And uh, as as you, you you so rightly pointed out, it's like playing cops and robbers, and someone keeps saying, "No, I have an invisible force field." No. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, like, no, you didn't actually shoot me because uh, I, I, I cursed your gun with my witch powers and now it only shoots backward and you're dead now. Like, it's, they're, they sort of comment on, like, all right, well, this game is a little broken, isn't it? Like, this thing is, like, clipping through the walls like a Bethesda glitch. Fuck this. <laughs> like, they, and, and then, so, you know, gearing up for the final showdown, um, we get, I love a big, uh, uh, armory scene where we get to have people going like, whoa, really big guns and like locking and loading it. I'm such a mark for that shit. Oh, you and me both. And this is arguably the greatest one of all time. And like so much in this movie, it, it all comes down to the interplay between Durkin and Harley. And as, as, as we, we were talking about earlier, Durkin's transformation from, well, I know things about serial killers. So obviously everything is fine to, we need to set the city on fire and possibly leave the planet. <laughs> is so well played. Yeah, we need to set the city on fire, but unfortunately, it's uh, sub brackets submerged in water. Um, we truly never get any water in this movie, and it's it's fantastic. Um, they so they. Where are we at? So we get a great moment with Dick Durkin and Harley Stone where they're uh, like walking down a hallway like cool guys, and somebody uh, at the the police station is trying to talk to them. And Dick Durkin is slowly turning into Harley Stone. Yes. Oh, yes. There's there's the trade-off with the cigar. He shows up in a much cooler jacket. Yeah, I think that in an action movie, if you and another man exchange a cigar back and forth, you're actually common-law married. Yes. Uh, at, at that point. Um, and so they... So fast forward a little bit. We... Uh, get a big underground, uh, like the, the London underground uh, scene where, and, and actually this this set piece, pretty fucking cool. It really is. It really is. Oh, by this time as well, Kim Cattrall has been kidnapped by the Tooth Ninja. Yeah, yeah, and, and of course he's using her for bait to yes. try to draw Harley out. And you know, it being Kim Cattrall, she's like, I, I did big trouble in Little China six years ago. It's okay. I, I know how this works. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been I've been through worse than this. Um, she, now, I don't know, the, the, is it ever explained why Tooth Ninja wants to fuck with Harley so much? There's, I mean, there are about 25 versions of this movie hidden inside Durkin's rolling 20-minute info dump in, in that right. final act. It's implied loosely that if the killer marks you but doesn't kill you, then the relationship is symbiotic in that they sense you and you sense them. And by this stage, uh, Michelle's been bitten, Harley's got the, the most apathetic claw scars down his, his chest, and as we're about to find out, Dick's chest cavity is about to be used as an Etch-A-Sketch. So all of them are linked to it. And that's basically where the movie runs out of gas. It's just like, um, uh, uh, look, it's the underground. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, fire? You like fire? Um, th yeah, that's kind of what it is. Is like he's got like a psychic connection with the monster, but aside from that, it's you know, listen, it's it's juggling, it's juggling a lot of a lot of chainsaws. Um, the so we get a cool thing where uh, Kim Cattrall is being um, suspended over a pool of water. Hey, actual flood water. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, and uh, they, it's it could not more obviously. It's like there's a big like Acme neon sign that says "trap here." Um, <laughs> And they know that they're like, oh, that this that, this is a fucking trap. But also, we gotta get her down. Um, and so we get this bit where uh, the first time we fully see the Gestalt uh, Tooth Ninja is um, Michelle is rocking back and forth, uh, suspended from the ceiling, while Dick Durkin tries to like hoist her away from it. And right as she gets away, the thing pops up out of the water. And this is a, a moment where it makes me wonder: Was there a version of this that was shot in three D? It that, has that look, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It's like it's like Friday the Thirteenth Part Three, where every, everybody's just like holding shit out to the camera because it's meant to be three D. Um, and yeah, yeah, this fucker just pops up out of the water. We get a big fight scene. I don't. The last ten minutes of this is a bit of a blur for me. <laughs> and I suspect there's, for everyone involved in production, there's a pentagram carved into Durkin's chest with a Scorpio symbol, which, by the way, is going to be my logo for everything now. It's <laughs> Like, there are so many bits of this that I'm like, oh, hello, my new avatar on the internet for a thing. Um, but yeah, so uh, what, they, they explode the, the Tooth Ninja? As near as, here's what I've been able to figure out. They, um, there is a fight on the underground train with the Tooth Ninja, because by this stage they've got Michelle clear. And in a genuinely endearing moment, Michelle is neither traumatized nor up for leaving. She's like, that's the thing that killed my husband? 
you have a spare gun. Cool, let's fucking go. Um, Man, she is great. And I, isn't you know she? What? MV, 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 MVP of Split Second, in my opinion. Absolutely. And there's a fight in an under, in the underground train where the the killer uh, at one point in in a moment. This is genuinely my favorite terrible special effect, aside from the visible plank under the exploding head in Carnosaur. Michelle is <laughs> oh, pers- yeah. is pursued along the roof of the the, the um, underground train by the killer, who has supposedly basically gouged his claws through the roof and is pursuing her Freddy style with them. And it is so very, very obviously a chunky key grip called Dave with a, <laughs> just a knife hand on a trolley going, when, now, cool, all right, and just pushing it and not that fast. Yeah, it's, yeah. That was one of those bits where you could tell that it was probably like the day before the rat party and they were like, hey, uh, did we do that claw effect yet? Like, oh, shit, oh, sorry. God, like, in. Dave, yeah. Dave, come on, we, we've got to do it, buddy. Let's just, come on, let's just get up. It's three in the morning. We'll just, we'll, we'll do it before anybody notices. But she escapes. Holly kind of gets his ass handed to him. Dick, arguably the second MVP of the movie, throws the plot grenade in because the old armorer hands them a grenade which is basically, this will wipe out a city. So obviously I'm going to give it to you assholes. Also, side note here, um, uh, Sarah um, uh, wanted me to point out on the podcast that uh, Dick Durkin kind of looks like Max Gladstone. Uh, I'm never on seeing that. Yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, th- it was important that they, they sort of leaned over, said that, and then went back to their work, uh, which was, they, they just, this is this is what they do. Just like pop up like the toasty guy from Mortal Kombat and make some horrifying statement. The So, yeah, d- uh, Harley gets his shit stomped by the monster. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, it's not quite a new model. But it's close. Um, And then Dick saves him, and then the monster explodes. Except the monster doesn't explode. So then they all shoot it again, and then they electrocute it. And then Holly and Michelle make out. Yeah, this monster is like Rasputin levels of like, we can't fucking kill you. Like, we're... They're just throwing everything out there. Like, uh, napalm, we got chainsaws. Like, drown him, maybe? Poison? Um, when, When he explodes, they... Uh, they jump sort of action movie style like ah explosion and then they land and they just immediately start making out and it's like guys do you want to fucking wait a minute (laughs) like it's it's an odd and and dick is just sort of third wheeling it like oh all right so cool great yeah we're making out having fun okay you you go i'll I'll just shoot things it's okay yeah also also, you pointed out um what is the deal with kim cattrall's accent okay kim cattrall is is very similar to John Barrowman in that she has two accents. Um, she is Canadian and American, and that's the most common one. But she actually grew up in Liverpool in England. And oh, really? And if you have heard the Liverpudlian accent, it is arguably the most distinctive one in the UK. I'm going to try and find some footage of her using it to put in the show notes for you because it looks like she's dubbed. It is Man. so. It, it's like hearing John Barrowman speak with a, a Scottish accent. It's that kind of oh, they got someone really convincing who sounds a bit like John. What? <laughs> yeah, it's like finding out that James Marsters is actually from California. Exactly. You know? It's just like yeah. Which I, I mean, obviously, like Spike's dialogue in season two was very sort of like that is certainly an accent like someone might have like because this is before Anthony Stewart had like coached him on how to actually sound like he's from South London. <laughs> just James. Yes. No. Just. Just. No. <laughs> Please, please, James. Um, the yeah, and then that's the movie. We we get I think bubbles rising from the water uh, as a kind of there might secretly be more gremlins waiting beneath the surface. It it is implied that that the transdimensional Gestalt Tooth Ninja may have laid eggs. That that's literally the uh, only thing I can think of. But yeah, mm. it, it it is a very clear or is it moment. Yeah, yeah, and then we get sort of uh. And then we end the note. Now, after this motion picture, after this uh, sci-fi uh, action horror thriller, the note you want to end on is all of them in a little speedboat, I think. Just yep. just bopping through the water on a little speedboat. I don't... Th- that was definitely them trying to be like, remember everything's flooded. Like, <laughs> oh, absolutely. Also, the, the, the lovely kind of last minute power play moment where Dick is narrating the scene and describes Harley as his psychic sidekick, Harley Stone. 
Yeah, and then Harley Stone is like, shut the fuck up. Like, it's just... I love the total lack of finesse from Harley Stone as a character. He doesn't do one-liners. He's just tired. Um, yeah, and honestly, and like, Rutger Hauer, it makes me appreciate him so much more as an actor because I'm so used to Rutger Hauer either being like a complete psychopath or being like a charismatic murderer or, you know, something sort of nether, uh, like another personality. And yeah. he he's perfect in this movie and i would I, I i had not anticipated him being so good in this there's you you mentioned in in the notes that the, the kind of pair of very weird and kind of lovely confrontations he has with the guard dog man he <laughs> <laughs> so at the bar that ian dury runs uh there's this little uh, rottweiler who by the way looks like a very good boy oh like, the I, best I, want to, I want to pet that dog so bad um, he's got a weirdly oppositional relationship. Like, he'll just, like, lean down and, like, whisper, like, hey, you piece of shit. Like, he just... Why does he hate this dog so much? And it's it, it's less that... And, uh, the, the, and it, it's more the, the lovely moment a little, a little bit later where Jerry rocks up, and, and he's like, what do you want? And now I just look down at the dog and goes, I was talking to your secretary. <sighs> Man, it's so good. Uh, th- this movie has so many bits that... Uh, don't quite it's 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 so much less than the sum of its parts but in such a way that i i can't think of any movie that has this movie's tone and execution like it is it stands apart oh it it really does and i mean i'd i'd argue it's it's maybe an early blueprint for a lot of kind of straight to straight to dvd stuff that you started to see at the top of the 21st century in, oh, for sure. In, in that you have the bankable star, surprising cameo, relatively locked down set, one or two interesting ideas, and um, I mean honestly, the, like you, the big the big thing that I took away from seeing this for the first time this century was there's a lot of stuff in here that really works, and a surprising amount of it is the acting. Yeah, yeah, I think there's not a weak performance in the movie, which is a strange thing to say. Even there are these weird little uh, goons at the at the end of the movie that sort of go down into the sewer with Harley and Dick. Like, what's the... They've got weird little leather hats. I never figured out. Alistair, who are they and what do they do? The, these are the guys who you beautifully described as looking like human fan art of fraggles. Um, I... <laughs> they're, they're, they, they, look, they look rough. They do not look like they've had a good time, do they? Um, I honestly have no idea. I, I have a suspicion, and it's that in one of the multiple versions of this script, and at one point this thing was going to star Harrison Ford, by the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So they so instead they got the other guy from Blade Runner? Yes, literally. I suspect there's an awful lot of stuff about Harley being more connected to the criminal underworld than he is to the police. Because there's that weird thing that's kind of hinted at in the first couple of lines of exposition, where he's basically a Ronin cop. It's like he's a cop who has been hired to come in and do stuff. Um, And I wonder whether this... Because it's notable that Michael J. Pollard, who plays the rat catcher, who runs the the humano-fraggles, as we will call them, um, is one of the only other Americans in the only other American accents, of course, in the movie. So I wonder whether there's some past history there, which, like the 15 yeah. versions of the film that are toyed with in the back 20 minutes, they went nah and just chucked. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Also, I, I feel like it's going to be like uh, this fucking. It's going to be. I'm. I'm. I'm I want to track down all of the bits of this movie to try to make a whole. And eventually, if I try to make a whole movie out of it. It's going to be me, like, with a Pepe Silvia board and just, like, <laughs> desperately trying to piece together a coherent uh, uh, storyline for this thing from all of the disparate uh, threads that they never they never tie together. Uh, but, yeah, so, all right. Now, the the conceit, the conceit of the podcast. Uh, we have to rank this on a list of other movies. We are, by the way, uh, this will be our 497th movie, so we are th- going to be three away from uh, uh, an even half a thousand horror movies we've done. Oh my god, um, that's amazing. My, my brain is mostly scar tissue at this point. <laughs> um, look, so looking at the list, I actually, I don't know. So I, I, if we're talking about weird, grimy uh, sci-fi horror from the early 90s, at number 270, we have Hardware. Uh, from 1990, which was, of course, the uh, Dylan McDermott uh, creepy apartment robot murder movie. You can't fuck with Moses. I'm divinely protected. <laughs> Shit. You've got Iggy Pop as the DJ. I, I, oh, oh, I need to go back and rewatch Hardware. <laughs> Alistair, what, which which do we think which do we think is better, Hardware or Split Second? Oh, Ryan, that's like 
that's like having me choose between my post-apocalyptic garbage children. I know. I'm I'm so sorry. You're, we, we've we've got to drown them, and we've got to drown one of them in flooded rat water, and it's it just breaks your heart. I my brain tells me hardware is better, and I am mm-hmm. going to ignore it because and I can give <laughs> you the three reasons why. Excellent. Split second has so much more of a functional female protagonist than any movie in this genre would have for about a decade in each direction. Absolutely. Um, Howard is so freaking good in this. And and just irrationally good. Like he I want to read the script he read to sign up for this. Because he's playing to that script. And that last half hour where it's just the idea tapas where the, mm-hmm. just like dimensional transfer <laughs> no Satan yeah we'll keep that one uh, Gestalt DNA cool yeah I think <coughs> this is, is the perfect way to put that yeah for those reasons I'm ranking it above hardware I'm doing it you know, I'm right there with you actually now uh, going up a little bit at number 267 uh, we have Nightbreed uh, by Clive Barker um I gotta tell you, I now I, I adore Split Second, um, but I now this is actually a genuine question for me because Nightbreed is another case to me of they didn't know how to market this movie, they didn't totally know what to do with it because of you know they they couldn't figure out a sort of tone. It was a, a, a sort of patched together from different elements. What what do you, what do you think? I think Nightbreed is the more important film by an inch. Agreed, especially because with Nightbreed, I, it's so important to me that like. I don't know, that Clive Barker ran into problems with the, the film execs because they looked at the first cut of the movie and they were like, but Clive, you've you've made the monster sympathetic. Yeah. And Clive was like, correct. <laughs> like, and? Yes, that is sort of the point of the thing. Yes, excellent. I'm glad you've watched my movie, apparently. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like I want to give the edge to Nightbreed just because, like, and, and now, of course, I, I have the benefit of, like, having seen Nightbreed, like, 8,000 times and mm-hmm. having just seen Split Second for the first time, uh, or not not the first time, I think I, I watched a bit of it uh, ages ago, but this is the first time that, that I've, like, sat down and focused on Split Second. Um and I, th- I, th- I think I want to give the edge to Nightbreed just because of its place in horror and what it represented yes. at the time. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Nightbreed feels like the campfire split second would sit by. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, oh, that's, yeah. So, and, and right below Nightbreed um, is the surrealist uh, movie Kuso, uh, which is on Shudder, by the way, if you haven't seen it. Cool. Um, I, Kuso is, it's, it's fun and ridiculous, but I feel like I didn't really have any moments of genuine human connection to any of the phantasmagoria, uh, on, on display in Kuso, where with Split Second, I feel like, I, I, I'm, I'm never gonna stop thinking about that bit with Kim Cattrall and Rutger Hauer just, like, touching heads together and, yeah. like, meditating on grief together, like, it, and that's in a movie with Satan and Christian Hell and uh, uh, a Gestalt Tooth Ninja and more blood than you could possibly uh, flood an entire and city. And Captain with. Thrasher, London um, Homicide, you know? <laughs> Captain Thrasher. You, you know that's how he answers the phone. Thrasher, Homicide, fuck off. Just every time. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, wouldn't you? Um, so yeah, so actually, so uh, I feel pretty good about that. What do you think? I think that's absolutely legit. So there we go. So coming in at our new number, 268, above Kuso and below Nightbreed is Split Second from 1992. Alistair, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been a delight. We Yeah, you've, you've, you've got to come. All right, so you've got to come back and we've got to talk about Lawnmower Man, I feel. Like if we're, oh. we're going to be doing... Oh my God, Ryan. Oh my God. Yes, please. Like, if we're, if we're doing this escape pod rank and vile club, I feel that, like, sci-fi horror should be the, the, the place we start. Um, where uh, where can listeners find you on the internet, and do you have anything that you would like to plug? Yeah, um, you can find me in a couple of different places. I co-own Escape Artists, which is a genre fiction podcast company that produces four shows. You can find us at escapeartists.net, and the four shows are Escape Pod, that does uh, science fiction, 
Cast of Wonders that does fa- um, YA, Podcastle that does fantasy, and Pseudopod, which I often host, which does horror. In addition to that, uh, I have a weekly pop culture newsletter called The Full Lid, which drops on Friday at 5pm and is basically full of all the stuff I've liked that week. Uh, I do a weekly uh, reading on Twitch on Wednesday nights, which at the moment is uh, Christmas Carol, which Ryan has provided some incredible music for that we listen to even when we're not Aww. doing the show. It's so good. Um, and at some point later this month, I have a book in the Black Archives series coming out, which is... Uh, the th- that's a series of academic treatises, treatises, treatises. We'll go with treatises. A series yeah, treatises, of, yeah, yeah, um, on individual Doctor Who episodes, and they had me come in and do uh, the Day of the Doctor, the fiftieth anniversary special. Oof, I got I got a lot of complicated feelings about that one. That is, it is the most complex critical assessment thing I've ever done. There was a point about halfway in where I had my Pepe Sylvia board for that. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, and guys, if you. Uh, like Alistair does amazing work generally, but like the full lid is, I think, the most delightful thing uh, ever waiting for me in my inbox. Like oh, it's just, you. guys, please, please go check it out. Um, Rank and Vile, uh, obviously, uh, listeners, you can find us uh, permanently and abidingly shitposting on Twitter at <laughs> Rank and Vile Cast. Uh, we are on Tumblr at Rank and Vile and on Instagram at Just Rank and Vile, where we are picking fights with people about the fact that Sleepaway Camp is transphobic. Uh, we are uh, on just about every platform uh, you could uh, care to download us from. We are on Stitcher. We are on iTunes. Guys, if you um, if you like the show and uh, you like hearing us talk about uh, uh, emotional intimacy in uh, sci-fi horror thrillers, um, you're, uh, consider you know just leaving us a, a, a review that you think is fair on iTunes. Ideally, a five-star review, but I won't I won't influence you uh, to to do this. No, I will. I will. Five-star reviews. No, in influence. Five stars. Five stars now. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> but we uh, yeah please, uh, but yeah. Uh, barring that, that is about all I've got. Stay spooky, folks. <laughs>